0: Hi everybody. Hello. Oh, yeah, here it is. So. I'm uh, very happy to be here with you uh, this <laughs> afternoon, um, and uh, it's a pleasure for me to welcome you on behalf of the Permanent Mission of Austria and the Austrian Development Agency to this side event and the panel discussion. Uh, welcome, dear panelists. Thank you for being here um, on the role of the media in the attainment of Goal 16 and the SDGs overall. Um very happy to collaborate in organizing this event, or actually we are co-host only, uh, with the Global Network uh, of Women Peace Builders, uh, which is a, an important partner of Austria's uh, international cooperation for the implementation of its work on the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And we are also very happy to partner with Peace is Loud uh, in this event. Thank you very much for this coll- collaboration. Uh, the adoption last year of Goal 5 as a standalone goal in the 2030 Agenda has been strongly supported by Austria, since for us, gender equality and women's empowerment are a pre- prerequisite for the achievement of all other goals in the Agenda 2030. This is why we also need to ensure the consistent involvement of women in, as active agents of change in the promotion and maintenance of peace. Women are equally indispensable for the achievement of Goal 16 on peaceful and inclusive societies. We are convinced that only through a strong cooperation between all actors, governments, civil societies and the private sector, change can be brought about for women and girls. This is particularly true for those living in conflict and post-conflict situations. Austria is therefore supporting the gender peace and security program of the African Commission, as well as civil society initiatives by international and national NGOs in various countries in Africa, including Uganda, Kenya, Nigeria, Egypt, South Sudan, and Ethiopia. In the run up to last year's high level review on Security Council Resolution 1325, Austria in November 2014. Had hosted an international symposium on enhancing women's share in peace and security, which focused on less developed aspects of uh, Resolution 1325. And uh, I'm glad uh, to see that the panel um, discussion today picks up uh, one of the symposium's recommendations, namely to integrate media in policies, campaigns, and communication strategies in women, peace, and security. And uh, if you are interested in the outcome of the symposium of uh, November 2014, Um, We have copies uh, uh, available for you to to take along and to take a look at. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, media is a powerful actor uh, which can contribute to gender equality and peace. This has already been recognized 20 years ago by the Beijing platform calling for an increase of women in the media and for overcoming stereotypes. We know that in conflict-affected areas, media outlets can influence paradigm shifts around women's engagement and leadership by expanding their focus beyond sexual violence and women solely as victims. At the the same time, we must be aware of the potential harm media outlets can do by promoting prejudices or hatred against specific groups. Without questioning the freedom of the media, we need to work against negative consequences, media programs, can have for women and societies at large. In closing, let me emphasize the huge potential of the media in the Women Peace and Security Agenda, in the attainment of Goal 16, and the 2030 Agenda overall, by portraying the ongoing work of women on the ground, in conflict prevention, peace building, and reconstruction, whilst holding actors and states accountable for violating the rights of women. Um, I wish you a very uh, fruitful discussion. I'm very glad to be here with you, and I have to apologize if I have to rush up to the next side event where my Minister for Women's Affairs is participating.
1: Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. I would like to welcome all of you also from my side. My name is Christina Stummer, and I'm the Gender Advisor of the Austrian Development Corporation. And as mentioned, the Austrian Development Corporation and International uh, Corporation aims to contribute to Goal 16 with a specific focus on implementation of UN Resolution 1325 um, as part of our focus on conflict prevention and peace building as a thematic area. I'm therefore glad for the opportunity to facilitate today this panel here, having with me a distinguished group of uh, media experts and uh, in the subject matter of today's uh, discussion. Since the beginning of 2016, the MDGs have been replaced by Agenda 2030 for for sustainable development which will guide the international community in its efforts for a better world for all. And whilst the SDGs continue to focus on eradicating poverty, of course, they finally also include universal goals of addressing unsustainable, unsustainable patterns of consumption and production and protecting environmental resources. In particular, through SDG 16, the SDGs tackle an important omission of the MDGs, which is that of governance, inclusion, participation, rights, the rule of of law, and security. This is important, because we cannot achieve uh, poverty eradication and sustainable development without tackling conflict and insecurity. We know that a large and increasing gap in MDG performance has been observed between states affected by high levels of violence, and other developing countries. The Austrian Development Corporation uses all forms of media very actively to raise awareness on development and peace and security within the Austrian public, as well as to support the work of media actors in our partner countries. We aim to do so even more and strategically in order to follow up on the policy recommendations mentioned before with a focus on the Women, Peace, and Security agenda. This holds true also for one of our partners, the Global Network of Women Peace Builders, who integrates different forms of media in its work on 1325, with very positive outcomes to be observed so far. Overall, GNWP reaches more than 5 million uh, audiences in more than 30 countries, uh, a figure which speaks for itself, as we think. In today's panel, we will look at existing initiatives coming again from different angles and including different forms of media, traditional ones, film and documentary, and social media. We will hear about practical examples from many regions in the world, including Africa, the Middle East, the Balkans, and Southeast Asia. I have now the pleasure to introduce Mildred Ngeza, an award-winning journalist from Kenya working as columnist as well as media and communications expert. Mildred advocates for policy change and social accountability through her media work and has worked as a reporter and columnist for all the three mainstream print media houses in Kenya, the Kenya Times, the East African Standard, and the Daily Nation. Mildred, you have been working among others on the media's role during elections in Kenya, and you will present very specific experience on how media can contribute or not to conflict prevention and peace in this context. Can you kindly share with us your experiences and also your perspective what we can learn from that and what you would recommend to us as representatives of member states and civil society uh, being here today, and also maybe to other media actors?
2: Thank you very much Malika. thank you Um, everybody who's here. I thank the Austrian mission for taking this initiative extremely as an important initiative. I want to just say that you have your, your hand where it matters because media matters. So I really appreciate that Austrian Mission is standing with the media globally on this issue. I thank the GNWP for incorporating media in this very important discussion. Many times media feels left out, and it is left towards the end of a process, at the launch of something so that we can create visibility. And that doesn't work normally for media. We, uh, uh, Media across the world will agree that in processes such as this, partnership a sustained partnership is what media needs to change things around. Now, I will try very much to capture the scenario from Kenya. 2007, 2008 wasn't a very good year for Kenya. As we all know, it's where we degenerated into post-election violence. Now, while it was our work as media to report election processes, campaigns, and everything that went around it before and during the elections. What we have sat down to to do and analyze our countries as the media in Kenya is to see where we went wrong then and how we were to correct or what we ought to have done or not done. Now, after, after the post-election violence, And we have 1,500 people dead, 600,000 displaced, and a very bad record on elections. Media had to sit down and access its um, operations. We were not going to stand there and say we were clean. I, for one, will say we were guilty as charged. It has taken a while for media to make that admission publicly, but I do think it was important that media had to sit down and try and redefine what its role is to build and sustain peace or for conflict prevention. During the 207-208, media was accused of being inflammatory. It was accused of being sensational. It's difficult when you have politics that are bordered on ethnic lines and very serious hardcore party politics for media to be objective. Media practitioners here know that objectivity is not 100%. In Kenya, I don't know whether we reached 60%. I am following the American media during this election period. I am going to give it a very bad percentage, you're not going to be <laughs> very happy. So what, what we acknowledge then is that inflammatory reporting and sensational reporting, especially during very volatile political seasons, are very uh, uh, challenging periods for media. It becomes even more challenging when uh, uh, stakeholders who matter the missions, the CSOs, and other players become disengaged from media and let the media run the course without putting checks and being in a partnership. So biased and skewed reporting for us in 2007, was the order of the day. Polarization became deeper. Suddenly, we stopped being journalists. We became tribes. Everybody in the streets was a different tribe. And suddenly, as a journalist, you remembered your tribe and your second name. And that, for media practitioners, is extremely different, uh, dangerous. So suddenly, you start seeing media coverage, media reportage is tainted in tribe or in party lines. Objectivity continues being thrown into the back burner. So our polarization infiltrated really deeply into our media ethics and media practice. At the end of the day, I think at some point we lost focus. And this, I know I have said it before, for both independent, publicly owned and government media, we kind of just got caught up in the euphoria of the heat of the politics of the day. This was a dangerous trend. When media should have been there to bring out the early warning signs of possible conflict, we were not very keen or very clear on bringing that out. When we should have raised the red flag and say we are degenerating towards dangerous grounds, maybe we were not as strong as we should have been. But I will argue as a journalist in any journalism training, you know that news is when a man bites a dog, and not when a dog bites a man. And so during election periods, men, many men are biting dogs. For media, that's brilliant, because conflict thrives in media. But the danger of that school of thought in areas that are potentially exploitive, I think any area across the world is potentially exploitive during during, uh, conflict. The danger of that is what happened to us in 2007, 2008. At the end of 90 days, we were a mess and we were burning. It's not only in Kenya, it's many countries in Africa where ethnic lines are extremely strong, many countries in the world where we have seen this. So therefore, at the end of the the election period, the Kenyan media came under quite a bit of criticism. At first, you know as media, we do not take criticism easily. We are the ones who criticize. How do you criticize us? But this time around, because Kenya was really self-assessing its role, or everybody's role on the post-election violence, those of us who actually realized and understand the truth and the essence of this profession, we took a back step and said, no, truly, we have to look at where we actually went wrong. Some of us came out to try and redefine what our role during election processes were. And we realized that in many ways we missed the opportunity to to get into conflict prevention, to get into peace building, where we should have been more proactive, for example, on issues on 1325 during conflict, we were not. We reported the, the uh, incidences of violence in different places, but we did not engender the incidences of violence. Women and children issues were the back burner. We are talking the hard news about who's fighting, the house is burning. But when we look at the brunt of war, we know that women and children cover the most. So we we, we, we assessed that. But fast forward very quickly, 2012, we had our next elections. And guess what? Our fingers were burnt. We were scared. We had been called all sorts of names. So media sat back. And I think we really sat back. We didn't ban in 2012, did we? No, we didn't. There was no blood in the streets. There was elections. But up to tomorrow, everybody in Kenya will tell you that was the most irregular elections we ever had. So the question that many of us who were not practicing in the media then, but still we were sitting outside to monitor the conduct of the media, was: is that did we self-censor ourselves too much in that we did not become vigilant. But the journalist will tell you when we analyze critically the way we know, they will say we are being inflammatory. So I say this for the benefit of many of all countries who go through election processes. At what point does media strike a balance? At what point does media bringing the objectivity that is needed in times of volatile political situations such as elections, while still it carries its role to inform, to empower, to educate, and to report objectively? So in 2012, there were no chaos. But there were serious violations which bypassed the media. And once again, we criticized ourselves for missing out on pointing out on very obvious election violations. But even as a person, even as a journalist, I have ended up asking myself, where should I weigh? Where should I lean? Because there was no violence. Yet we know that there are quite a bit of violations and irregularities that we we, we know we needed to bring out. When it comes to working with media on issues such as our Resolution 1325 and the SDG, we know that topics such as 1325 may not be conventionally sexy to media. Please allow me to use the word because media uses it every day. You go to your editor to give a good story about Resolution 1325 Mm -hmm. and what the women are doing, and the editor asks you, so what? So what we know is that changing and shifting the paradigm of how media thinks is going to take a while, but it has started. For example, we at Peace Pen Communications take the plunge to get all the snares and the insults from our fellow journalists when we say, come on, if we can report war and conflict and bickering and all the political conflict amongst politicians from side to side, then surely that same platform we can use it to resolve conflict and build peace. But media and my, I am feeling very honored to sit in the presence of celebrated media names that I know about Errol, I am very honored. But media has to ask itself tough questions about what its role is in conflict resolution and, 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 and peace building. And so today I was asked to talk about what kind of recommendations I give to my colleagues in media, in journalism. Most of us get into the profession because one, we want to change the world. And then when you're in the profession you realize you can't change the whole world but you can change the world for one person if you do the story right we know that it is true in africa sometimes the story you write makes a difference whether a community fights or it doesn't fight whether a community gets water or it stops to death we know that the story makes a difference it cannot change the whole world but it changes that situation so then in my call to my media my, my, my media colleagues, and I know you're here, it's pretty difficult dancing in the newsroom with the devil of the editor on your back. But we know the power of the pen when you're working. We know the power of the stories we go out to cover. We know when we've covered conflict and how it makes us feel. And we know that we ask ourselves questions as to whether we could have do, done better to resolve the conflict or to bring out the role of women in peace building. And we know that after years of practice in newsrooms and in the news desk, we know that we can influence that kind of policy change within the media. That is my challenge to the media. To the CSOs who brought us here, who work so much, who we love to hate sometimes as media. I will say we love to hate hate because in the part of the world where I come from, repression is demonizing the work of the CSOs. I don't know about other countries, but I can speak because of many countries in the region. Many governments down uh, right now in the eastern part of Africa where I come from are using repression to silence the work of the CSOs and to demonize the work of the CSOs. For us, every day as media, we deal with calls to ignore the CSOs who have an, a very foreign agenda, even if the CSOs are coming to talk about eradication of FGM or talk about children, girls going to school. So we know that. So at this point, I always look at CSOs and say, if you partner with media from the start of the process, we have just launched a national action plan for 1325 in Kenya. I am part of the steering team with my sister Joy there. And I have told them within this national action plan, if you don't take in media as a partner from the start, then the visibility of it, the importance of it out there in the market kind of diminishes. My call to CSOs, hold on to the media hand in hand from the start. It can be difficult to work with media. It can be frustrating. But I want to assure you, any journalist worth the title wants to change the world, just like you. It's difficult in the newsrooms they work in and they face many challenges. But there is a chance to get the journalists to understand the agenda that we have to make things better, to work alongside 1325, if you take them as a project of capacity building, not only to the grounds where we go to to enhance capacity, the journalists themselves. So I urge the CSOs not to drop the ball, not to wait for journalists at the end of launching a report and sending a media invitation to the launch of a report. They don't read those things. They don't have the time. They'll go through it and have coverage that is this small, and then you'll say media doesn't support us. No, I challenge the CSOs to work with the media in their country. And yes, I know it is the hardest thing, but I want to tell you, we are not as bad as we look. We are very receptive. (laughs) So I also want to challenge, I think, to the governments. The realities that we live in today, we, we said in the mornings in some sessions, we live in the challenges of the war on terror and the anti-terror efforts. It is shifting everything and how we operate. Suddenly, our spaces and our independence, including for the media, are becoming very, very limited, very small. My challenge to governments is that we should look in retrospect at how much this diminishing spaces is costing the gains that we made 10, 20 years ago, and then weigh where we are at. My fear in the region where I come from, that space has diminished so much that suddenly you wonder whether we can breathe. It is difficult when, right, and Kenya has been hit severally in the terrorism scenario. It is difficult when the government comes in immediately after we have been hit to say we have to investigate 100 NGOs and close their accounts and stop their operations because they might be linked to terrorism. Now, these are very emotional moments. So the whole country feels, yes, that is true. The CSOs have to be investigated. But our colleagues working in the CSO organization, the first frustration is that they know that the cards are not very clear as to how they are operating. So all these are the realities that we live in. I urge again and again that during this process, as we try to enliven, my sister Joy and I, we say how we breathe life into 1325, now that we have national action plans, is to carry the media alongside as an active partner from the beginning throughout to the end. And it is going to work. So I thank you for for being invited here, and I look forward to further discussions. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mildred. Um, it seems that there's a big need for media to actually uh, be sensitive and sensible in their reporting. And I would like to thank you also for taking over the responsibility in this regard and demanding it from other media actors. And I hope we will also have some time to discuss the role of civil society actors in cooperating with the medias. And I would now like to hand over to Jamie Dovey who is the executive director of Peace is Loud, a non-profit organization uh, that uses media and live events to highlight the stories uh, of women peace building and resisting violence in their communities. And Jamie, in your work uh, with the media, you try to make especially grassroots women being heard and enhance their involvement in peace building. And can you share with us now some practical examples from your work and give us an insight and also suggestions, if possible, for all of us?
3: Thank you, Christina, and thank you to the Permanent Mission of Austria and the Austrian uh, Development Cooperation and GNWP for involving Pieces Loud in this event and for having me here on the panel. And thank you, Mildred, for your remarks. I especially appreciated your comment about making 1325 sexy. Um, I'm, going, I'm going to be talking a little bit about that today in my remarks as well. Um, as Christina said, my name is Jamie Doby. I'm the executive director of Pieces Loud. We're a nonprofit organization that was founded by filmmaker and activist Abigail Disney and we use media and live events to spotlight women leaders who are building peace and resisting violence in their communities. Um, we execute outreach campaigns around media and documentary films that highlight women in conflict. We run a speakers bureau that represents women human rights defenders and we also oversee a series of social action campaigns that give audience members, you know, sort of tangible things to do once they see the stories on screen or hear the stories on stage. Um, our vision at Pieces Loud, I would say, is to um, really use the Power of media and storytelling to present women not just as victims of human rights abuses, but also as actors who can, you know, define and uh, defend human rights abuses from the perspective of their own lives, and in the context of the SDGs and SDG 16 in particular the pathway to developing and promoting just, peaceful, and inclusive societies, it requires that women be positioned at the center of global decision-making around conflict and peace-building. Uh, one of uh, SDG 16's targets aims to ensure participatory and representative decision-making at all levels, um, and I think we have a long way to go in achieving this, which we all um, know. From 1992 to 2001, you know, we've heard these stats, only 2% of mediators and 9% of negotiators in peace processes were women. Um, and in our media work uh, we hope to demonstrate women's success in working for peace uh, in the hopes of reversing these trends. So, um, Peace is Loud's first project uh, was overseeing the outreach and education campaign for the PBS film series Women, War and Peace. Has anybody seen any of those films including Pray the Devil Back to Hell? Yeah quite a few of you Um, so I'm gonna show you some scenes uh, from the series uh, on the screen behind you Um, the series took place in four different countries Liberia Afghanistan Colombia and Bosnia looking at war through the eyes of of women I'm also going to show you a uh, trailer really for the trials of spring which is our most recent series um, of six short films and one feature film about the role that women played in the Arab uprisings um, and also the uh, kind of subsequent um, back backlash that they uh, suffered in the political transitions that uh, followed. And after we watch, I'll talk a little bit about the impact of both series in really stimulating conversations around women, peace, security, and uh, gender equality.
4: We
1: live in fear. When I go out of the house in the morning, I say goodbye to my children and my family because I say that I never know whether I'm coming alive back home or not.
5: If you look at the frontline discussion of wars, the troops, the politics, the borders, the weapons, the armies, that is a men's story. How you actually
0: exist and continue on living in war, that's a woman's story. That story has never been told.
3: Uh, there are no front lines in the wars in today's world. The
0: fact is, the
3: primary victims are women and children. Civilians are not, quote, collateral
5: damage, as we once called them, but really uh, very much in the center of the war zone.
3: Women, although they are not necessarily the combatants, are often the victims.
5: In contemporary wars, the tactic is killing or raping women.
0: This is a very nasty weapon of war. It has probably become more dangerous to be a woman than a soldier in an armed conflict
3: the work of afghan women will be essential to this country's success
6: we will struggle we cannot do anything alone the world has to support us in this this is not the first case where rape has been charged as a war crime but it is the first case where rape has been charged as
2: a crime against humanity What we've done here today is to send out a signal to the world that we the Liberian women in Ghana, we are tired
4: of fighting the killing of our people. If I should get killed, just remember me that I was fighting for peace. Ultimately,
6: it's going to take reconciliation among people in order to get societies that function and that women are treated with respect. That is what this century is going to be about.
5: Now that Mubarak stepped down, what's your first wish? And I was like, end sexual harassment. Every Egyptian woman can be assaulted at any time. And all what prevails is impunity.
2: عشان نكمل صورتنا يوم 25 يناير
1: الموضع بعد ثلاث سنين بسوء أكتر مبارك rule سكاف government and now back to an interim government backed by the army and the same activists are being tried and arrested
6: ما <ترجع>
2: It's not hard
5: to remember what I wanted during the revolution, because what I wanted then is what I want now, freedom. Who doesn't want freedom?
3: going to start by um, discussing the Trials of Spring, which are, you know, is the last um, scene that you saw. Uh, Hend, the main character in the feature film and also the um, short film on Egypt that accompanies the feature. Uh, she's a human rights activist in Egypt. She grew up in a conservative Muslim family in a small village uh, outside of Cairo. Her family was aligned with, uh, you know, the regime, whoever was in power. And for Hend and many women, their stories were not the ones being sort of documented in the mainstream media. And so we felt it was important Kind of increasingly important to to um, have them tell their stories in their own words to show the different strategies that women are are using in the MENA region to uh, you know resist uh, violence and defend human rights. Um, as I mentioned, we produced six films um, in conjunction with the feature that covered Syria, Bahrain, Tunisia, um, Yemen, and Libya. Um, they uh, premiered on the New York Times um, this past year. The feature was at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, and since then we've been touring the films around the world. They've been um, at 250 classroom community screenings um, with about 200 different partner organizations, we're launching a campus tour this year. And of the screenings we've done, I would say that pretty much across the board, um, you know, we've heard that the films are really excellent resources for highlighting women's activism. You know, during the Arab Spring, hearing the women's stories in their own words um, really helped to give critical context and made the stories, uh, you know, impactful on a more personal level. Um, also, after screening the films, one kind of um, impact story that um, that I think is pretty amazing is that the National Defense University in D.C., after screening the Trials of Spring, they were inspired to create the first ever course on women, peace, and security at the university. Um, And the ambassador, uh, Stephen McGann, um, he's a commandant at the Defense University, he shared this with me. He said, one key result of screening the films has been the decision to offer a 12-week course on women, peace, and security, which will be the first ever for National Defense University. At the university, women, peace, and security it's not a discourse on gender preference, promotion, or prerogatives. Our goal is to define an operational doctrine to undergird the development and implementation of strategies and policies that would lead to the successful formulation of a sustainable framework which would meet the foreign policy and security objectives of the United States and its global partners. And they're implementing these films and, and media in that um, in that conversation. And so you also saw clips from Women, War and Peace. Um, we are currently in production on Women, War and Peace Part Two. Um, this first series trailer that you saw, um, began with Pray the Devil Back to Hell, which I think as many of you um, know from your show of hands, it's a story of Muslim and Christian women in Liberia who came together to protest for peace um, and end Charles Taylor's dictatorship. uh, Abigail Disney and Ginny Redeker, the uh, the co-creators, they wanted to be sure that the story of what the women had done was told, um, the story of the women in Liberia as negotiators, as peacemakers, as leaders, not just as targets and victims. Um, the series went on, as you uh, saw, to include also Bosnia, Afghanistan, and Colombia, and stories that, again, the mainstream media wasn't really covering in these, in these countries. Um, we brought the films with discussion guides and resource materials um, to 2,000 organizations, 85 countries, all continents, including Antarctica. Um, and the responses that we've gotten, I think, are pretty indicative of the power of film um, in this conversation. Just a few examples. Uh, Prey's first public screening um, was in Srebrenica in Bosnia, where Muslim women were rebuilding their lives after you know the conflict. The women saw the film. They saw themselves in the Liberian women on screen. And they were inspired to testify about the sexual violence that they had experienced, and their testimony led to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia to declare systemic rape a crime against humanity. Um, in uh, in Tbilisi, Georgia, women who watch women war in peace, they wrote a position statement calling upon women to fight for peace. The next week, they took that statement up into the conflict zones to get women on the other side to sign on. Um, in Israel, the NGO uh, Women Wage Peace, they've translated pray into Hebrew and Arabic. And they are today screening the film for thousands of Israeli and Palestinian women working for a peaceful resolution to the conflict. In the Congo, we had men approach us after seeing the films and saying things like, I always thought women were kind of worthless, but now I feel sort of differently about this. Um, and that was five years ago. And just this year in the Congo, um, the founder of the NGO uh, Synergy, uh, Justine Bahamba, she's been driving through the country with a mobile cinema, bringing prey to 12,000 people throughout the North Kivu province to mobilize women to run for local office in advance of the national election. So, um, you know, I think that these impact stories. Demonstrate that media can help us really kind of close the gaps between our current reality and the objectives of the SDGs by providing very clear demonstrations of the impact uh, women have when they're given the space to lead. Um, in terms of recommendations that I have, um, I'd say there were three. One is ensure that grassroots women leaders and women led organizations are meaningfully included in high level decision making on peace processes. The second one is um, to dedicate funding to independent media projects that provide women on the front lines of conflict the ability to tell their own stories about conflict from their perspective, and to dedicate funding to the outreach campaigns that bring those films to to a wide audience. and um, Third is um, kind of going uh, off of what Mildred said, you know, let's really kind of humanize the issues that we're talking about around 1325, around the SDGs, utilize documentary films to advance your organization's or member state's goals, Um, you know, use the films as awareness raising tools, education tools, practical resources. I think films like the ones you've seen that are kind of character driven, nuanced and captivating, they have a way of um, kind of appealing to people's hearts and creating empathy. Um, and inspiring reflection and dialogue in a way that I think is difficult for um, sort of policy statements or research papers uh, to do. So I would encourage you to utilize the media that's sort of already out there like these documentary films. We do have a list that we've created that's um, up front of films that uh, that touch on women peace security issues and where to access them, how to host a screening, um, so I encourage you to, to grab that on your way out. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Toby. I'm really impressed also by the impact which could be achieved in the different conflict-affected countries. I personally also believe very much in films and documentary to raise awareness um, among non-professionals and the broader public in this issue, which, as we have heard, is really difficult. And uh, yeah, thank you for providing these examples. Um, You have mentioned the Balkans, and we are now going to move to this region. And I'm very happy to introduce to you Errol Uh, uh, an award-winning journalist and author from the Balkans, uh, professionally based in New York since 1993, and you are a senior diplomatic correspondent at the United Nations headquarters, as well as an online publisher and public and university speakers, among other other things. just to, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, because you are quite familiar with the existing international policy frameworks, um, for example related to 1325, and also about the facts that there are big um, gaps in terms of uh, even if they are adopted to be implemented. And you will talk about this and your experiences, and also will give us your perspective on how the media can be involved to change this and overcome this gap.
7: Thank you very much, Christina. I really appreciate that you invited me and Mamik, of course. uh, uh, And I do salute this intention of the Austrian mission, really, to bring that issue. I was really touched um, uh, with the Milford's uh, awards. And I can only tell you, Milford, that I'm not going to repeat any of your. but I second all what you have said. And I experienced that during the war in Balkans post-conflict era in Balkans, and we are still in Balkans, and they are the states. We, sometimes we call it Western Balkans, but Balkans is, uh, uh, let's say, the, the, some countries that are more than 60 million people, and most of them actually are talking the same language, although it looks sometimes that we are talking very many different languages, especially when we start covering the same issue from different point of view. But anyhow, I wanted to tell you that uh, there is no star among journalists when you are working journalists, because there is no other profession that allows less entitlement than working journalists. You are just working and that's it. But I cannot uh, avoid to say how much I actually would like to put some light on that, uh, I would say, conclusion. And I would immediately move probably with with my recommendations because I just realized that I'm only man, that respected minority among these panellists, beside the ambassador of course, (laughs) uh, uh, that we are actually only men beside this uh, distinguished panel. But I wanted to yield this much of my time actually to the distinguished panelists because I realized that in uh, this panel, we have to move forward with some questions from the audience. But I wanted to say, uh, there is old phenomenon of implementation gap, and it's not anything new that we have that implementation gap either in policy or uh, in the law and practice, and we are all aware of that and it's very much so here in this institution in the United Nations actually, where we have heard so many good, precise, comprehensive resolutions. but when it came, and when it comes to the implementation of those resolutions, for example, during the Bosnian wars, I was, war, I was witnessing more than 70 resolution adopted at the UN Security Council. I witnessed President of the Security Council at that time uh, Ambassador of Venezuela, Diego Aria went to Srebrenica in 1993, two years before, before genocide occur, occurred. And he came back with the recommendation and with the conclusion saying openly to the same Security Council, we are witnessing down there the slow motion genocide. We all heard, I reported uh, so many times with my tone that somehow I didn't report anything by the facts, but in my tone, actually I was accused later from some colleagues that I was announcing that somehow the intervention will happen. I never pronounced that, but tone of my reporting was very much of the expectations. So expectations and implementation and the policy, what is adopted, is totally different thing. So actually, I would immediately move with the recommendations. And I do have really two recommendations to the uh, member states, starting with the friends from Austrian mission. And I must recognize that your former ambassador was my good friend. And of, of course, Ambassador Valentin who is now high representative of and Herzegovina, We are very good friends. And we are often talking about this what can be done in order the implementation of those good words uh, that are put somehow as a laws, or because we all know that the Security Council is producing somehow the laws, the global laws, put uh, to work. As a representative of media that is here 24 years, and Christina told you that I'm senior, I'm senior because of that gray hair, Uh, Probably when I came, I was like, uh, uh, you probably. (laughs) Uh, We should really ask the member states to be more sensitive, more open to the new signs of time. And when I mean that, I think just what you have showed just now, films, social media, at the end of the day, we all know that the most powerful and most populated state in the earth is Facebook, 1.5 billion people. Mm-hmm. Why I'm saying that? Because since I started at the United Nations, I always heard, and I was witness, actually, how much uh, member states are rushing, with all due respects, to Reuters, to Associated Press, to uh, AFP, and to 16th member of the Securities Council, At it was pronounced during the Bosnian war, is CNN. CNN <laughs> was pronounced as the 16th member of the uh, uh, Security Council. But they never go so much to those, as they call at that time, Mickey Mouse media. And now, thanks to the changing of the time, thanks to the social media, we have more opportunity. So my recommendation really goes to Member States to be more sensible and uh, To go and do the interviews, respond to the interview requests, to smaller and social media websites, portals—not only to the big media, because big media will go with the mainstream, which always, most of the times, could go at the same direction. We will have a very many good wordings and everything, but less action. So we need really to move, as they say at the UN, uh, from promise to action. So too many promises are made, too little action is done. And the second, of course, is to be uh, consistent with that global integrity. In the era of uh, globalization, what is global integrity? Global integrity is to try to close that gap from the uh, what is put as the policy, as the politics, pol- political realm, and the implementation. So, I hope, though, that in the near future, we, the media, will be able to measure that global integrity, not with these—I'm uh, not going to use the pathetic word—but with the with the very plain wording and very plain language, like in the American election. <laughs> said before, probably just to shake a little bit the environment that is sometimes go together and you cannot distinguish what is media and what is uh, the policy maker or member state or so. I would finish here just to open for the questions. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Errol, and I would really like to take up these recommendations to use social media more um, systematically, also from from member states, and uh, also to influence, I think, um, the fact that a lot of also not very positive things are going on in social media, and there is a need to respond to that and to uh, make a positive influence in this regard. Um, Let me now hand over to our last panelist and change the region once again. Um, I'm happy to introduce you to Malika Dat, who is the founder, president, and CEO of the global human rights organization Breakthrough. Um, You are a member of New York City Commission on Gender Equity as well, and you are a member of the Social Media Council of the World Economic Forum, among others. And Breakthrough, for all of you, is known for using media in really creative ways um, to change cultural norms around gender-based violence in the U.S. and in India. And you have developed, as I said, quite innovative media projects uh, that call for an end to violence against women. Um, And so I would like to invite you to present uh, some of your experiences and, of course, again, recommendations for us to take up. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you to the Austrian Mission and to all of my fellow
6: panelists uh, for this really most excellent conversation. Before I actually share some of our media with you, I want to just put out three ideas. The first is that I think we all recognize that we are living through a time of incredible crisis and incredible opportunity. The old paradigm that have functioned around the economy, around politics, around family, around community, around nation states, are showing cracks, severe cracks. And as we struggle to find solutions to dealing with those cracks, we see the continued use of violence um, as one main expression of dealing with the uncertainty that surrounds us. The time of opportunity is embedded in that time of crisis, and as women, who have been pushing for different pathways and different paradigms, I invite us to really think about how we step into this time of crisis, not from a place of victimhood, not from a place of give us a place at your table, not from a place of please listen to our voice, but from a place of we have some serious solutions that we can offer because the old systems are broken. The second thing that I will say is that, in terms of media, you can see from the range of uh, expressions just in, among the panelists is that media today means many different things, and both the forms of media, the means of production of media, the ability to disseminate media have been democratized in a way that is unprecedented, and so. Again, in order to step into our power and our voices, the invitation is not to think simply of how do we influence media houses to cover certain issues or how do we tell stories of our pain, but how do we tell stories of the world that we dream about? How do we use the media to bring in culture change? How do we use media as a mechanism to dream this new world into being. The third thing that I would like to contextualize my uh, uh, presentation around is that as much as we need to push the presence, voice, and leadership of women around this new world that we want to create, it is equally essential for us to really transform notions of masculinity, notions of manhood, (laughs) notions of what it means to be a male. Because without the latter, we will continue to be in these spirals of the use of violence or the threat of violence as a way to control the status quo, as a way to control the status quo of a paradigm that is based on notions of fear and scarcity. It is essential for us to do that not only for women, but for men it is essential for us to do that, not just for human beings, but for our very planet. So having raised these three broad points, I'd like to share with you on a much more mundane level, two examples of the ways in which Breakthrough has created media to engage in campaigns that are about transforming notions of masculinity. So I'll ask Joanna to um, find them, and it doesn't matter which. So this is an animation that we created uh, that has actually been playing at NASCAR, at the car races around the United States. And for those of you who may not know this, NASCAR has the highest sports-watching audience. And so for us, it's been very important to to find ways in which we shift norms, we shift norms of masculinity in spaces where men engage with those norms. So obviously watching car races and having men as the primary audience in watching animations like that is a critical way of an invitation into a culture shift, a culture change that is not just about you men are an asshole, but you men can be that guy that can get engaged in challenging violence against women. And peer-to-peer pressure, peer-to-peer shifts, have been shown to be some of the most effective ways of accomplishing culture change. I want to show you another PSA since we don't have a lot of time. So this is another campaign that we created in India almost eight years ago. We've reached more than 30 million people in India alone with that campaign. It's been adapted in multiple countries around the world, including Pakistan, Vietnam, Um, and I can't even remember the rest. Uh, And again, as you can see, it's taking something that is seen as a private issue that happens behind closed doors and creating a public intervention into that space. Again, it's asking men to challenge other men when a cycle of violence is being perpetrated. And this campaign has been incredibly successful When we use media at Breakthrough, we see it not just as a media strategy, we see it as a culture change strategy. So the creation of media and the dissemination of media is anchored in partnerships, in community engagement, in agenda setting, in a whole range of other advocacy agenda. So it isn't just that there's an ad out there that's just sort of happening by itself, but that there's a multiple plethora of strategies that come together to push for that equilibrium shift, to push for that culture change that we are trying to make in this case, in these two instances around the issue of masculinity and how that impacts on violence against women. We work on a number of other issues including early marriage, the unequal sex ratio, um, sexual harassment, sexual assault. You might be wondering why we're sharing these examples in a conversation about peace building. I would really like to very strongly say that the connection between violence against women in the home and the relationship of what happens with that to what men do to women in places of war is deeply interconnected. These are not completely separate arenas. The way in which violence is used to control, threaten, and silence women runs across the entire spectrum. The use of violence as a way to coerce is a mechanism of control, not just vis-a-vis women. It is a mechanism of control vis-a-vis majority and minority groups, between religious institutions, between adults and children, between humans, and animals and other life forms, violence has become a critical way in which power currently is expressed across multiple domains. And so if we truly want to realize the sustainable development goals, if we are serious about the creation of just, peaceful, and inclusive societies, then this whole question of how we do power how we exercise power, lies at the heart of how we are going to show up. Women come to CSW every year in very large numbers. This is the largest group of civil society entities that show up at the United Nations year after year. It is my invitation to us to step into that place of how we reshape and redefine and do power differently. And so to come back to my recommendations that I started with, it is a time of extreme crisis and great opportunity. Media has been available to us as a tool like never before, so let's use it. And let's make sure that as we engage women in leadership, we do some serious transformation around notions of masculinity and power. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Malika, and I'm especially happy because I think the issue of masculinity is one of uh, the really key one if we want to uh, not only address gender-based violence but move forward with the cause of gender equality. Uh, And we in the Austrian Development Corporation have therefore also put the focus since two years in cooperation with academics and also with international communities already integrating boys and and men uh, in in the practical work, but also working on masculinity issues. So thank you very much, this was really useful. Um, And I would like to thank all the others as well for their insights, and I'm happy that we are quite well in time, and we have now time for questions. We have 10 minutes left, and I would like to invite uh, the audience to come up with with questions, present yourself briefly, and um, be very clear to whom you address your questions, please.
4: Coming from, I could really resonate with Mildred, because our spaces are getting really tight, you know, because of the terrorism. So you have the people, most journalists, they are reporting uh, amongst religious lines, lines, and they're very deep in Nigeria. About last week, we had this issue of a young girl who was adopted since six months ago, 13-year-old, from the south, and um, she was transferred to the north, and um, she was changing to a Muslim. She's a Christian. It was a really big issue in Nigeria. It was the press in the north was reporting that the girl was um, that she, she eloped with him? You know, she did it out of her own will. Well, like she's 13. You can say that. But the major problem I have is going to Dr. Erol. The social media, the division. How do we strike a balance? Because every day on the social media. You have Nigerians. I see a very bleak future if we don't stem it now. Because all you have is people from the north saying, you are from the south, you're a pig. And someone who's Muslim will say, you're a Christian, you're this. Every day you see stuff like that coming up on the social media. And I'm really pained about it because I know my country. I, I'm, I'm from the south, but I grew up in the north. I've seen many riots, I've seen many dead bodies, I've seen a lot. And I don't want to go back there. So, how do we stem what we see happening in the social media now? because Nigeria is dividing seriously amongst tribal lines and the journalists are helping it happen. Thank you.
1: My name is Fuyama Sati, I'm from South Africa.
5: Okay. Um, I, I just Mine is a very short one. Uh, in terms of everything that has been said by the wonderful speakers that presented, I mean, what we're hearing, what I am hearing, um, as an investor in media, is, is very exciting. But my frustration, as an African, is that we deal with wonderful, creative young people, I mean, across the spectrum of media, in terms of journalism. Um, but the issue that you were saying is that they are, they are, they are ambitious to get those awards and work for the global you know like the 16th uh, member the cnn's and all that and the portrayal of the developing countries by those is a very negative so in order for them to buy into being selected there they have you know to fit into that culture that we as the african investors and african players are trying to change so you are constantly in this battle um, in in, in the change of culture. And I'm I'm challenging you, whilst you're challenging everybody, um, to basically make visible what what you're saying here. You don't, you mustn't just say it within the UN. Your own writings and where you are, you know, needs to talk to them, to those young media catalysts. You know, I don't want to say journalists because in, in their whole form, Because if we don't manage to change at that level, this is where, you know, I mean, and it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating to sit with an African child and say, what you're doing is working against what the African Renaissance is about. But because they are gunning for a job for the CNN and wanting to get that award and being selected, they see it, but you are not going to offer what he or she believes is what is needed. So I challenge you, it is your responsibility, as much as it is ours, to make visible what you have said to us today.
1: From uh, McGill University,
3: uh, representing the International Relations uh, Student Society at McGill. I'd like to pose my question to both uh, Mildred and Errol and ask whether or not you believe that implementation of the 24-hour business
7: model alongside the rise of social media has contributed to or uh, hindered, um, I'd say, the use of sensationalism, bias
3: reporting, and focus on fear in media, and how these uh, tendencies can be harmful to the promotion of gender equality, and what recommendations you might have for working within these most recent phenomena to reduce it.
2: Thank you. My sister from Nigeria, I hear you and I understand what you're talking about in Kenya right now because of the anti terror issues and the war media is trying to operate very carefully treading the grounds on where you draw the line peace pen communications organizes sessions and forums for discussion for media where we can we call it spit We tell media, let's sit down and spit. Let's have a spitting session and spit about what is nagging us before we go to cover and report the the, the terror issues. I mean, we do understand that... uh Uh, There is homophobia on many things, we are urging media practitioners, those who understand what their role is, is to really think through each single line, each single clip, each single word, the the, the mouth. On radio stations, we know how powerful radio stations are in our part of the world. The radio is the first port of call for many. We know what happened because of the radio stations in Rwanda. The radio was the gospel truth. And it could be just a line that you say on radio. People follow, people listen, people understand. We are trying to infuse a sense of responsibility in journalists to be accountable for whatever it is they are doing, whatever words they are saying. Just to pull on to what Errol said, as the part of what we have, uh, we, we have an upsurge in vernacular stations, vernacular media points. In as much as social media is growing and it is huge, our vernacular radio platforms, our vernacular media are equally important. At the end of the day, people have been to the farm, they are sitting at the square, they are listening to radio stations in their own language, and they love that. What we try to infuse to our vernacular radio journalists is that. Because I've taken you to the UN to understand 1325, you are even much more higher than Christiana Manpour on CNN. Because you had to understand 1325 in English to go and transform it in Igbo for your people to understand it. So we try to enhance the capacity of vernacular journalists and build their self-esteem. And tell them, you might not be sitting in CNN, you're sitting in a vernacular radio station. But the people in your community follow every word you say. It is what you understood stood at the UN New York that you're coming to teach them with. So the importance of fitting into this, and I will join that point with your point, my sister. Yes, we try to be visible. It is difficult trying to push against the tide that has always been. What we try to do is to force the journalists to come back to the drawing board and ask themselves difficult questions. Why did they get into the profession and why are they doing it? And in doing that, we try to, to, to play around with them. You have to go back into their mentality to understand the situations they're in and why, like an incident that happened in Nigeria years back, that when you write a line, it can make a difference as to where a fatwa is declared on you and people die. Because you, you you had a simple explanation when covering the beauty pageants and you invoked the name of the prophet, peace be upon him, without thinking about the implications. Yes. So it is about sensitivity. When I speak about media sensitiv- sensitivity and media sensibility, these are things that the media now in our changing world cannot renege. You have to go along with it. And. Social media, to tie into the question that you ask. I, I know, and I am a believer, at first I was wary of social media, but I realized I cannot remain, because my worry with social media is that you cannot police social media, you cannot regulate social media, you cannot control social media, these are faceless people who can, but it is an important point of media in our changing world, you can use it in a very constructive, significant manner, or you can use it for totally the opposite side. So my view normally is that if you're getting all the negative influx of social media, how do you bombay it with the positive influx that you know and understand? I tell young people that you, with a computer on YouTube, you can Google for all the college scholarships you want to go to your next point in life. Or you can Google, you can go into all the wrong sites, now you know what I'm talking about. We cannot follow our children past sleeping time to see who they are Googling. But I, t- I mean, it's up to you, it's the decision point. Ours is to mentor, ours is to push and say, fine, we are getting all this negativity coming from our war on terror. From other, but how, how else do we present our message equally firmly? Because you cannot let them play on the social media place and win on it. So, we have to try and match up. Try and match up because we are being strategic, we are being significant, we know we are doing it for change. So, the social media train already left. We cannot sit here and say we are not following it. We're going to have to follow it, but with the right thing. So, how do we do it? And we have to, to use it as much as possible.